Bitcoin is also the, the most important tool in the last 5,000 years for human freedom. It is bringing people out of poverty. It's giving property rights to 8 billion people. It's giving hope to 8 billion people. And so if it uses one quarter of 1% of the wasted energy, I would say that's probably the best single use of energy happening on our planet today. Thanks for joining me once again on today's episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I'm super pumped about today's show, which we feature Brandon Quidham. We cover quite a wide variety of topics, including mycology and how it relates to Bitcoin, the economy that we actually see in the mushrooms and the plants in the earth. We then take a deep dive into the energy usage around Bitcoin and why it is needed before jumping into the fourth turning. There is a lot of great content on today's show and Brandon really brings it. So sit back and enjoy the rest. All right, welcome back to the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I am your host, Eric Rao, and today we have Brandon Quidham. He is the author of Bitcoin is the Mycelium of Money, an article series that we have mentioned on the show many times before, and he is the king of analogies. Brandon, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Eric. I will gladly accept that crown. <laughs> it's a crown you've well earned. If you have listened to any of Brandon's uh, work in the past, he has most definitely earned it. So hopefully he can give us a, a few tastes of it today. So Brandon, if you don't mind, like, uh, let's just talk about your background a little bit. What uh, where did you get your start and what led you to where you are now? Yeah, so I was uh, first, let's see, I started my career as an enterprise software sales rep for Oracle. So calling on large companies, classic, big org, complex, long, very large sales cycle thing. Um, that was going really well. I would say up until that point, my whole life had sort of been focused on becoming this high power business person, blah, blah, blah. And everything was going well, a young kid making money, getting the promotions, getting all the external validation. And I thought it was going well. And then, you know, over time, I realized that I was not actually being fulfilled here. And so it sort of caused me to reflect and say, okay, what do I want my future to be like? Um, I sort of paused the, the fast track at Oracle. I went through a yoga teacher training while working full time. Um, and through that experience, I sort of had the juxtaposition of these like happy hippie yogi people and the like hard charger, you know, douchebaggy salespeople. And so the having both of those two at the same time gave me a, a good way to sort of re-examine my life. And through that process, I ultimately came out of the understanding that maybe I don't need to pursue this identity that I thought that um, I was supposed to become. And so it sort of gave me the confidence to kill the boy, become the man, whatever you want to call it. And so my wife and I, who I met at Oracle, actually, we quit our corporate sales jobs and bought a one-way ticket to India. And then that kicked off, that was in 2014. And that kicked off a period of our life where we backpacked around the world for four or five years um, and built businesses as we traveled. So sort of the four-hour work week, digital nomad lifestyle type thing. Um, which went well. We built a business teaching yoga instructors and wellness entrepreneurs business skills. So think like online courses teaching you how to build a website or monetize your yoga teaching business, something like that. Um, and that, that went really well and it afforded us the ability to travel all over and, and you know, bills were paid, etc. And then I, I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole hard in 2017. 
uh, bumped into it a few times prior, like most people do. And it finally clicked in 2017. And at that point, uh, you know, standard rabbit hole story, you know, 10, 15 hours a day, wake up, read computer all day, fall asleep, listening to Andreas Antonopoulos, et cetera. And after three to six months in the rabbit hole of, you know, like, honestly, I get obsessed about things. So it was an unhealthy period of obsession, which I do. And out of that, I realized, okay, it's, this thing's important. I need to radically change my life. And it was at a good time. I would say I sort of lost the passion with the yoga business and I was more coasting and definitely not living up to my potential. Uh, found Bitcoin. Okay, here's a mission I can get behind. It actually is uh, an implementation of the values that I personally held and didn't really have a place to express those. And so it felt like kind of a personal mission alignment thing. And also it's intellectually fascinating. And I personally like, I, I consider myself, my role as a homo sapien is to be on the fringe of society and to dive into weird things and extract cultural artifacts and understanding um, and then communicate those things with, with more a more general audience. And so I think Bitcoin fits that well. Um, and then I realized, okay, I need to break in this industry. How do I do such a thing? I don't have an investing background, I don't have a finance background. And so no, no obvious move, no, uh, no coding background either. And I just started to do whatever I could in the industry. So I started um, teaching people things, started writing, researching, doing some consulting, kind of like helping normal businesses figure out what to do. Um, and after kind of meandering through the industry, um, I found myself at Swan, uh, swanbitcoin.com, which is a Bitcoin-only exchange focused on education. Um, just think of it like an easy way to buy Bitcoin. Um, we've been building that now for about a year and a half. It's growing very fast, very fun. And to rewind here, uh, the way I got into the industry really was through creating content. And so I also have a, an interest in mycology or studying fungi. And that started with uh, gourmet mushrooms, foraging, psychedelics, all the ecology, all those different lenses. And during the study, studying process of Bitcoin, I realized that the architecture of Bitcoin sort of appears to be a living organism, which I think we'll touch on later. Um, but it maps really, really closely with, with fungi. And so kind of merging those two worlds together, that's what really kicked it off for me. And then I started writing about that analogy and um, yeah, a lot of people really resonated with it. And I went from a, a nobody breaking into the industry to someone who is kind of well known for this very obscure niche analogy, which has now become quite popular. And so having that um, content online serve as kind of a bat signal or a calling card to where people who resonate with those ideas start approaching me. Right. And so, you know, you're making a podcast. That's a great way to build inbound and to find your type of people will all of a sudden find you, which is one of the magical things about the internet. And that writing led to a reputation, which led to all the job opportunities in the industry. And so a lot of people say, hey, how do I contribute? Um, you know, people feel compelled to contribute to this thing and they often ask how. And my stock answer is always to create content. And for two reasons, one, it creates inbound, you create a calling card, like I mentioned, but also number two, it sharpens your thinking. If you want to publish something online, uh, I like ideas. So I'll be late at night marinating on some ideas. And I think I have something amazing. But really, it's just some crackpot idea late at night until I sit down and actually write and, you know, polish that thing and have the external pressure of, OK, I'm going to publish it now. People I respect are going to read it. I don't want to look like a dumbass. And so then that the actual editing and the finalizing process of your ideas, that's where the magic is. Because you realize what's the essence of your idea. What can you get rid of? 
what do you not actually have uh, good logic on, right? So you have to kind of like rebuild your ideas. And so that, that's what I would recommend to new people. That's my story. That's a mouthful. Over to you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for the background there. So when did you start getting into mycology and just really start diving into that side? You said Bitcoin was around 2017 is when you dove in. When was the mycology side? Yeah, so I graduated college in 2010. Um, at that point, pretty much right after college, I started experimenting with psychedelics. And so, you know, eat some mushrooms, you know, that was a powerful experience. We can go down that rabbit hole if you'd like. Um, simultaneously, I started foraging. I've always been an outdoorsy person, but foraging mushrooms sounded like a fun idea. And so that was maybe 2011, 2012. Um, then you fall, you know, fall into Paul Stamets' world. You start reading the books, watching the videos. And I just found it as an intellectual curiosity. I like cooking as well. And so it kind of hit me from all these different angles. And I think mycology is probably the most, most uh, misunderstood relative to how important the ideas are. In, in the world today, uh, maybe second to Bitcoin. And, and the reason is um, mycology, the study of fungi, they're sort of like the underpinning of our entire planet. You know, they created the topsoil, most of our medicine comes from them. They build the ecosystem, they're the collaborators. Um, they have the ability to help us colonize space. They have the ability to rejuvenate the environment. And so all of our big problems looking forward, um, I think fungi have a role to play there. And so, I like things like that, big ideas. And so, yeah, way before Bitcoin, I was into mycology. But I want to make it clear, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a mycologist. I'm just an amateur nerd who likes to read and learn. Yeah, you've uh, done quite quite well for yourself for being a quote-unquote amateur nerd. So um, we, we've all learned a lot. So thank you for your contributions there. So you started getting into mycology around, you know, two, let's just call it 2011, and then Bitcoin in 2017. When was it that for the first time you kind of saw the parallels and really started to think that, okay, there, there could be something here with, you know, a, a decentralized network and, and what was it that stood out, stood out to you? Yeah. So I was in Bali at the time. This was early or mid 2018. Um, that was again, towards the tail end of our digital nomad time. And we were living in Ubud, going to meetups all the time. And I was still rapidly in learning mode. And it was at one of the meetups there. Um, we're discussing ideas similar to this and everything just started to click. Um, I rode my motorbike home that night and just pulled out a journal headphones. I was just scribbling for hours um, as, as all the previous knowledge that I, you know, had with from mycology just started to make sense. And, you know, both ideas are symbiotic. So the more I learned about fungi, the more Bitcoin made sense. The more I learned about Bitcoin, the more fungi made sense. Um, but most of it was, it all came out that same day at least like kind of the core of the argument. And it probably took three to six months after that before I felt the confidence to um, actually publish this thing. And the primary reason is you look around the Bitcoin community, number one, it's it's the most dense uh, intellectual capital on, in anywhere in the planet, probably in the history of time, meaning all the smart people are here. And, and so I was like, okay, I'm intimidated to write about it, number one. Number two, most people talk about finance, economics, game theory, technology. And I'm over here saying, yeah, well, Bitcoin's a mushroom. And so I didn't think people would like that idea. Um, and but however, Dan Held, he wrote a, a series called Planting Bitcoin, which was a four-part series, um, kind of, kind of a, exploring the early part of Bitcoin through the lens of biology. 
And that once I saw that, that kind of gave me the confidence that this could work. And he helped me publish the first one, market it and things. Um, yeah. So what ideas did you see that really overlapped the two and made it click and, and w- explain to the people, you know, what you, what you talk about in my ceiling of money. <clears throat> Absolutely. And before I do that, I'm gonna take a sip of water here. Go for it. You've probably got, probably got a bit to say. For the list. <laughs> yeah. I apologize to the listeners. I was at the Miami Bitcoin conference last week and my voice is still not fully recovered. Um, okay. My, my ceiling of money. So the first thing here, like let's set some context. Bitcoin is a lot of things to a lot of people. Okay. It's, it's hard to understand and it, it is a new thing. There really isn't any context for describing it. And so um, you mentioned analogies earlier. I like explaining Bitcoin with analogies because if you explain exactly what it is, again, there's no context. So it, it doesn't really sound important. Um, and so I like using the biological analogies because Number one, I just like that stuff. And number two, I think Bitcoin actually does appear to be a living organism, a new type of life that lives on the internet. And number three, I think biology is intuitive for a lot of people. And so we're of biology, we observe the natural world, we kind of get the principles. So when you put it in that context, a lot of people, it seems to make sense, especially people who don't grasp the the tech or the economic side. Um, So that's that. yeah, so let's, let's talk about the analogies. Um, Bitcoin itself is software, right? It is open source code that people run all around, all over the world, millions of people around the world run the software and that software makes a network. But there's also this, this human layer, this social layer, the people involved, right? And we interface with the software, we make decisions, we, we communicate online and that social consensus actually steers the protocol at the software level. Right, so this, there's a strange symbiosis between machines like hardware that run the nodes, the software that lives in the nodes and, and, and links everyone together and the people. And so it's this weird mass of things. And it's a decentralized system. There's no, there's no one in charge. And instead it's, it's a sum total of all its parts that make up the network. And if we look at mycology, um, study of fungi, the primary form that a fungal organism takes is a mycelial form or mycelium, which is essentially a network underground of tubes. Okay, one cell wall tubes that connect underground that, that trade information and resources bi-directionally. It's like, an, it's like Earth's natural internet, or uh, the nerds would say the wood wide web. Okay, and this wood wide web connects all the trees and plants together. And for example, plants, they produce their own food. So they take sun and carbon dioxide, create fat and sugar, and they sell that food underground to the mushrooms who connect into their roots. And the mushrooms are down there mining minerals. Okay, they're chemists. They dissolve the world around them with chemistry. So they break down a rock or an insect and they grab some nitrogen and they sell that nitrogen up to the plants in exchange for the food. And so this circle of life is happening there. And again, with this mycelial network, there's no central processing unit. It's millions of little tiny cells, little endpoints acting in their own best interest in their local environment. And the sum total of those individuals creates the network. Just like all the computer hardware, the individuals, the software, all the nodes in the Bitcoin network together make up this decentralized intelligence network. So very different from humans, right? We have a brain, computers have a brain. These are decentralized networks. That's the, the first thing to understand. 
Uh, the second thing is that these decentralized network archetypes actually learn. Okay, so in fungi, um, let's say a predator comes and it's attacking the network. This could be another fungi, it could be bacteria, something like that. Um, the fun fungal organism sends information through the network to the mushroom scientists. The mushroom scientists say, shit, we got to figure this thing out. They come up with, they do some chemistry magic and they create a new custom enzyme. They ship it over to the predator and deal with the predator. Okay, and now over time, this fungal organism, in an effort to survive, it starts, it starts building a chemical library of defense mechanisms. And if you fast forward through billions of years of evolution, these organisms through um, dealing with their environment have become very good at survival. They're actually the best, best organisms on our planet to survive. Um, we've had about six mass extinctions on our planet. And let's say, you know, big rock hits the earth, dinosaurs die, that type of thing. In those extinction events, most plants and animals die, but fungi survive. You know, they're considered anti-fragile organisms. They have the ability to learn, create new enzymes. They can pretty much eat anything. And yeah, they're just well adapted to, to Earth's planet. And so Bitcoin's the same way, where let's say there's a, um, a bug in the software or someone's attacking the network. Okay, information travels to the social layer, finds the Bitcoin developers. The Bitcoin developers create a new software enzyme a uh, new patch and they fix the code and over every time you attack bitcoin the code gets better the social layer gets better the hardware gets better the software gets better and so again it simulates life it simulates learning um that's probably the, a good high level view we can go into many analogies on some of the finer points here but does that make sense from like a high level how they're similar living archetypes most definitely does um so there's a few things you touched on in there. Clearly, a lot of information was just thrown out. One that I thought was interesting that you said was the mushrooms trade the goods with the plants. Now, I listened to a conversation that you had with a woman named Toby, um, and it was pretty incredible the way you guys talked about what mushrooms are doing. So you guys basically described it as like an underground economy going on. So do you start to see an economy being built underground and so is that, is an economy natural to earth? And if so, are we building that with Bitcoin on the internet? Oh man, I love this question. Um, to frame it up, Toby Kears is a, an evolutionary biologist and she studies fungal economies, just like you mentioned. And the podcast was Future Fossils. So if anyone's listening, look up Future Fossils, search my name or Toby Kears. And I'll my have it in the show stuff. notes. It'll, it'll be in the show notes, so. Perfect. Awesome. Toby, um, yeah, what she's essentially identified is um, in like scientific sense. So she's setting up experiments to show this trading, right? And what she finds is they're very simple experiments, but they find things like um, hoarding resources and transporting them and then selling them at a higher price. Okay. So let's say uh, there's a lot of nitrogen over here. Um, and so if, if the supply is high, the price is really low. So the, the mushrooms will ship that nitrogen way over to the other side of the network and then get a better price for the nitrogen where it's scarce. In a rain situation, fun, the mycelial networks can actually trap water molecules in their network and hoard them until there's a drought and then sell the water to the trees at a higher price. And so she's proving all these things. And now to, to look at your question, which I think is very interesting, which is that, okay, um, these biological organisms seem to operate on a, a very simple protocol, like maximize survivability or maximize trade or 
whatever it is. So there appears to be economic decision-making built in to these extremely primitive organisms. And I, I think biology is just simple rules at different layers. Like you can look at particle physics that follow simple rules. And then you can look at like organic chemistry, simple rules. You can scale up to uh, cells, organules, organisms, ecosystems, right? They're all simple rules built in layers. And if we use that layered framing, it appears that economics um, emerges out of our natural world naturally, um, maybe because of the, the, it's essentially just assigning value to things and making smart decisions. That's all economics is from this level. And so if we can observe it at this primitive level, it begs the question, is economic behavior fundamental to either biology or some deeper layer in, in the, the reality that we see? And I think that the answer is yes. I think, I think economics is intrinsic to the emergent properties of biological evolution. It's, it's simply a mechanism to drive evolutionary behavior, uh, right? It is, a, um, it is a, a useful skill to know in order to survive. Because if you have two fungal organisms competing, the one that's really good at trading is always gonna outcompete the one that's bad at trading. Right? So there's evolutionary pressure to get good at maximizing your own ability, your own resources, and trade is part of that. Um, that's a very meandering thing, but I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting process. And if that's true, what does that mean? Like, and I don't know the answer to that, but it, it is very peculiar. And I think one last thing to bring up here is we know very little about fungi. And so these little glimpses, it's going to be really hard to scientifically understand these things with the, you know, the falsifiable repeatable rigors of science. Um, but it does give us a glimpse into this, this other world, um, which is essentially complexity science, where right now science is built in these radial arms. It's like biology doesn't talk to chemistry, which doesn't talk to physics. Okay. And the reality is these distinctions are human made up. There's no distinction in nature between biology and physics. We just arbitrarily draw lines. And so we separate these thinkers. And the problem with that is the biology and the physics and the chemistry are all the same. And so what we need to do is stack those, those topics on top of each other and let them work cross-disciplinary. And that's what complexity science is. Instead of distributing people, we bring them all together. And what do we see with the overlappings? So this would be an example of overlapping biology, evolutionary biology more specifically, and also like primitive economics. And so as that lens, okay, there's going to be a whole bunch of new things coming out of this as we layer on uh, subjects that aren't previously connected. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to me. So I've, I've really started to dive into the, these processes and view economic and trade as a language in itself. Um, so something that Phil said on the show is that money at its base layer is a layer one communication network. And it really hit home to me because, you know, without money, we can't communicate. We can't assign value to what you value versus what I value. And you value your black t-shirt more than, more than I do. So you pay a higher price for it. And it's really intriguing to me and the way we need money and trade to communicate. And it, I think it's the, the base language and it leads to language. Um, and I don't really know where my thought process is going with that yet. I think I've got a lot to really uncover um, still, but it, when it comes back to nature and you start to see trade in nature, then it's like, okay, well, if trades in nature and nature is what 
humans and our species and, and every animal is built off of, then, okay, at the very base layer, how does this stuff really start to work? And, you know, where does money come into play? And how does, you know, a money that makes it immediate to be able to communicate across networks really can start to change the game with language. Like I said, I don't really know fully where I'm going with that yet, but it is something I'm like really excited about trying to, you know, trying to dive into a little bit more. Yeah, I'd I love to comment there. And I, I think you're right. I think money is this very, very base layer aspect of society. And I think my favorite framing here is from Nick Zabo, which is about social scalability. And the, the term here, if you haven't heard this, is essentially a human's ability to cooperate. That's the simplest form. Um, and let's use an analogy here. So the, the majority of human biology was, was forged during a period where we lived in small hunter-gatherer tribes, roughly 100, 150 people. And so all of our hopes, dreams, desires, everything are, are made in this small group setting. And the reason why you can't get out of that group setting is because we didn't have uh, social scalability. We didn't have technology to allow us to care or cooperate with groups larger than 150. And that group is essentially kin. You know everyone. Everyone is loosely related to you, so it's very easy to care about them. But as soon as you get bigger than that, what, what we found is that groups would splinter off. And so in order to break or increase social scalability, we had to figure out a way to cooperate outside of our kin group, okay? So this could be things like language. If we all speak English, maybe that's one way that we can uh, cooperate, right? Maybe we all believe in the same type of religion. So we all have this thread that connects us beyond kin, beyond our, our genes. Um, another one would be money, right? Now you can trade with the neighboring tribe because you have this common language of economic value. And so if you layer those things on agriculture, um, you know, obviously the internet would be a good example of increasing social scalability. Um, so with things like um, property rights, okay? If, if we, we have this system where I know that this is my land and you know that's your land um, and someone enforces it, that allows us to cooperate because we have this ability to know yours and mine and it allows us to stay civil, okay? And if we fast forward social scalability to today, um, we're essentially at the industrial nation state level. So our, our government's goal today, the game, is to have the biggest army and the most power, okay? And that, that allows you to conquer places, gather resources, have more power. So a big army is essentially the game. And that's a relic of the industrial revolution. However, now we're in the information age. And so the game starts to change. You don't need a big army anymore because we're not really having hot wars. Instead, you want cyber wars, you want high tech, right? That's more, more useful. And so what I see Bitcoin as from a social scalability layer is, or lens, is a way to break that glass ceiling of progress because we're stuck in the nation state game where Bitcoin dissolves that game and allows anyone in the world to communicate value with each other. There's no boundaries and there's no artificial boundaries created by the state. There's no artificial boundaries created by companies. There's no artificial boundaries in anywhere. And so now value can flow liquid like liquid anywhere on the planet. And that, that opens up an ability for people who are currently not part of the global network to join the global and it reduces the ability to need a government over a long term, or at least it starts eating away at government services. And so uh, as a property rights system, right, 
Bitcoin self enforces itself. Right now, if I have a my, my my house here, if someone breaks in, I call the police, and you know the court system essentially defends my property rights here. But in Bitcoin terms, the security of the network defends my property rights. I don't. A police officer can do nothing to the to the Bitcoin network. There's no way to enforce the Bitcoin network from a police officer. You know, it's in the network, and so. Again, you're taking power away from the state. You're connecting everyone around the world and allows us all to cooperate in a new way. And that's going to bring a lot of human prosperity because think about people who live in Zimbabwe or Argentina, Venezuela. They have no ability to save their money long term because their, their monetary systems keep breaking and they don't have access to uh, Bitcoin. They don't have, now they have access to Bitcoin. They don't have access to dollars or more stable currency. And they're not able to sell their goods and services online, maybe because the U.S. has sanctions or whatever. Um, and so it's going to bring a lot of human capital online that currently wasn't. So I like to think like, OK, how many Maya Angelos, how many Nikola Teslas, how many, you know, famous invent future CEOs are hiding in these countries, but they can't participate. So we want to bring all the human capital online and the ones who are successful, they're going to make life better for everyone on the planet. And so that kind of that's the social scalability angle, right? It's going to allow us to cooperate better, kind of move past this industrialized nation state. It's pretty intriguing because what you just said a few minutes ago about when you start to look at the sciences and overlay them together, and you'll be able to make these drastic improvements because when they were previously separated, um, there was no talking between them. And I look at the same thing with nations um, because you know in the last fifty years, hundred years before the internet and before, you know, a global money, what has happened is, you know, the United States has found the smartest people in the United States build companies and people work for them in the state that they start in. And, you know, you look back 40, 50 years, I live in Portland and Nike started in the headquarters of Nike are here. So then it probably attracted talent that moved to Portland, but now this talent can live anywhere in the world. And so, like you mentioned, you're stacking the sciences on top of each other. Now we can almost start to stack the nations and you can start to get these people from all around the world. Like for example, both of us live in different States than where our companies are headquartered. And then a couple of weeks ago, when I was getting my podcast art made, it ended up being a man from Pakistan made my podcast art. And we were speaking over Fiverr and communicating. And, you know, it was there were some communication barriers with with language. But at the end of the day, it got exactly what I was looking for in the conversation. But it was a man across the world. And I paid the value that I thought it was worth. He received value that he thought it was worth to, to do and build. And you start to get these these things built out completely across the world because you're just finding the best talent. You're not worried about um, the, the person next door. You're not limited to the person in your apartment complex who can do something for you anymore. And so looking at that and how social scalability with the way the internet works and then now with money on the internet, will start to remove barriers of entry with just finding the right talent at any point. It's, it's crazy how much it can push humanity forward as these ideas will start to be fleshed out and people across the world will be able to, you know, you probably had feedback from people in every continent or on every continent besides Antarctica about your, your work. And so it, it's pretty intriguing to just really start to think about the, the impact that that can have on the future of our world. So it's exciting. So hey man, I would love to comment one thing there. Go for it. You go. Yeah. Um, you brought up an important point and it's essentially the, the sovereign individual thesis, which is a book written in the nineties, 
predicting what changes will come from the transition to the information age. And the book is kind of a, a sweetheart book in the Bitcoin community because they predict Bitcoin, they predict um, all kinds of things that are happening right now. And so if you like these type of ideas, it's a must read. And the one point I want to highlight here is that geography matters less when we're all online, right? And our capital is now mobile. Bitcoin can be freely moved across borders. There's no, there's no way for the government to stop you. And so individuals can work anywhere due to technology. The internet's everywhere. Um, and it's okay to work everywhere. Our capital is mobile because no one can stop you from moving your Bitcoin. And so what does that do? People, people can go anywhere. So that forces states to compete. It says, okay, I'll, I'll go anywhere. Who wants to give me good terms, right? And you're seeing, uh, you're seeing Miami, you're seeing Austin, Texas, you're seeing Wyoming. They're passing new laws. They're recruiting entrepreneurs. They're giving good tax treatment, all kinds of things. And if you play that out over the next decade, let's say, there's going to be countries who make Bitcoin tax havens, right? The news today uh, or this week was with El Salvador. They essentially said no cap gains tax, invest three Bitcoin in our country and you have permanent residence. Bitcoin is not an asset, it's money here, which means no capital gains, right? So that's the first big flare up saying, hey, bring your money here, bring your talent here. And that's gonna happen all over the world. It's gonna be very, very good for the individual because anytime the states compete, right? They have to compete for our, our, our talent. And so we're gonna win there. And I think it's very poetic and I think it's very important because what it does is it brings symmetry between um, the people and their governments. Right now, governments, I think, have too much power. They have too much budget. They spy on us. They, they have laws. They can do whatever they want. Um, they can cheat. They get bailed out. We go to jail, right? And so I think what Bitcoin does, is it puts more power in individuals' hands at the expense of the state, which creates a more honest relationship and a more symmetrical relationship. And I think that's ultimately good for people, right? We want the states to be lean and uh, do things that work not just be trust fund babies, which is kind of how they act. Yeah, one, one thing that is really exciting with Bitcoin, like you were just talking about is um, your capital is now global and mobile. And there was a tweet a while back that I just kind of resonated with me. It was the video game respawn idea of how like Bitcoin, if you memorize your 12 or 24 words, you could be dropped anywhere in the world with just the clothes on your back or naked, there you go, if that's what you please. And you could start fresh immediately without having to, you know, call your bank across the world with a cell phone that you don't have. And it's pretty intriguing when you start to think about it. And then this morning I was thinking about that idea and actually relates back to mushrooms because if you dropped, if you cut out a mushroom and you dropped it anywhere in the world, it could just tap into the local network and just repopulate and reproduce there. And so, you know, you just start to see these parallels to nature and how the environment can really work together with, with now how a money doesn't have to be in your pocket. You don't have to have a gold bar in your pocket anymore. And what that can mean to refugees and what that can mean to travelers and what that can mean to nation states and digital nomads. It's just so many things are so exciting. And then you just touched on the El Salvador news. So for those of you who don't know, El Salvador just passed a bill last night to make Bitcoin legal tender. So in 90 days, Bitcoin and the US dollar will be the two legal tenders in El Salvador. Very exciting news as it really just opens up game theory across nations. We've already started to see representatives from about eight or nine nations um, start to 
signal their willingness and want to encourage their nations to adopt Bitcoin as this is going to be seen as a, a draw for companies and a, a way to get young talent and resources into the nation. And so just really drastically <laughs> increases the speed at which we thought all of this was going to happen. Um, and I, I actually tweeted at Parker Lewis today. I said, is this where the gradually switches to the suddenly <laughs> moment? So, you know, there's just a lot of exciting stuff in the space going on. Um, so if, if you, do you have anything more on the topic that we've kind of been going, going at? Uh, from the biology side or from? Yeah, more on the just, biology side. Yeah, I, I've got one that I, I think is really important. Um, but first, just to wrap up on El Salvador, I think the two things that are happening here that are most important, number one, 22% of their economy is from uh, remittances. So people from El Salvador who live in the US, they work there, they send money home. And so it's very important for their economy to have that money flowing in. Um, and the, the current setup, they lose like 30 to 50% of their remittance pay to middlemen. And they oftentimes have to spend an entire day taking a bus six hours away, waiting in line for hours just to get their money out. And then they get 30 to 50% taken. And so the, the, the obvious move here is for um, the folks sending remittances to use Bitcoin rails instead of dollar rails. And that's what Jack Mallers is doing with Lightning Strike, his app. You essentially use the Lightning Network to send dollars home for free instantly. And so that's going to save them, you know, 30 to 50% of the remittances right off the top. So they just got $6 billion in GDP improvement just from that alone. Um, the U.S. is kind of threatening them with, with the, with this remittance thing. So it's kind of a defensive play saying the U.S. cannot turn off our remittances. We can use Bitcoin. That's point one. Um, point two is that this is the, they want to attract capital. So it's young politicians. They're in their 30s. They want to improve. And so they're shooting the moon on technology and transformation. And part of that is attracting capital, like you mentioned. No cap gains, all the things we mentioned, residency. So this budding industry that wants to change the world, they're all moving their businesses down to El Salvador now. People are buying properties, et cetera. And so it's going to be a massive flood of capital into the country. Um, and so, like you said, the game theory plays, who's going to be the next country to attract the talent? Are they going to sit by and watch El Salvador become the first developed nation in the world, the first Bitcoinized nation? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're going to see many more. Um, so that's El Salvador. The next thing I want to talk about, though, is uh, with biology is proof of work. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because there's a lot of debate in the mainstream media around Bitcoin's energy use. Okay. And I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty details here because most people don't care. Um, but what I'm going to say is that um, this is a hard topic to understand. Proof of work is by far the most complicated aspect of Bitcoin, but it's also the most important aspect of Bitcoin. Um, and I'm going to use a couple of analogies just to give you a new way of looking at this. If you want uh, more detail about energy grids and this and that, look up Nick Carter and just read his articles on energy. I think that's the right place to start. Um, but I want to talk about it from a fungi side. Um, and the two ways I'm going to do that is through pioneer species and also through a type of fungi that are essentially the recyclers. Okay. So one type of fungi they connect into the trees and they trade resources. And there's another type of fungi where their job is to recycle. What do I mean by that? If you're walking through a forest, branches fall, leaves fall, animals die, etc. 
what happens to that organic matter that hits the ground, right? If, if, we, if nothing recycled it, it'd be hundreds of feet in the sky. But luckily, fungi through chemistry, they break down that leaf litter into its base elements. So they unlock carbon, nitrogen, et cetera. So essentially liberating resources that are currently stuck in a format that's not usable by the ecosystem. Liberate resources. Okay, and then they recycle them and they trade them in underground and the circle continues. In Bitcoin land, um, the Bitcoin miners do a similar thing. So majority of Bitcoin miners are mining in areas where the energy production is stranded. So there's no customers nearby to consume that energy. And energy is really hard to transport and it's really hard to store in a battery. So a ton of this energy gets wasted. In fact, roughly one third of all the energy humans produce is wasted. And so and then on the Bitcoin side, the incentives for the miners, it's a very competitive ecosystem. Their number one important thing to find is cheap energy. And so they're not going to go to LA, plug in Bitcoin miners and pay, you know, retail costs in downtown LA. It's too expensive. They wouldn't make any money that way. So instead they have to find the cheap and free energy, which is almost always the stranded energy, right? Because there's no customers. So for example, in China, they have a bunch of hydro dams in an area with no population centers. So in the rainy season, they produce a ton of energy and none of it gets used. So instead of letting it get wasted, they plug in the Bitcoin miners and convert that stranded asset. They liberate that stranded asset and turn it into money. And so the same kind of deal, right? The stranded asset being converted into something useful. And that's massive for the ecosystem. Does that make sense from the proof of work side? It's liberating stranded assets. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. And from a, from a numbers perspective, um, one quarter of 1% of the wasted energy is how much Bitcoin uses today. One quarter of 1% of all the wasted energy is all the energy that Bitcoin's using. And okay, let's compare that to the mainstream media. They, they've literally posted the headline, Bitcoin is boiling the oceans. Bitcoin uses more energy than Norway. Bitcoin energy consumption is going to destroy the planet. They say all this nonsense. Well, guess what? Uh, clothes dryers in the US use more energy than Bitcoin. Christmas lights use more energy than Bitcoin. It's one quarter of 1% of the wasted energy. That's the scale we're talking about here. So whenever you hear this, realize that people are uninformed, number one, and also mainstream media has to sell clicks. And selling clicks means selling sensationalist headlines. And it's popular to, to support the environment. So they're just playing to their incentives. Okay, disregard all that. Bitcoin is also the, the most important tool in the last 5,000 years for human freedom. It is bringing people out of poverty. It's giving property rights to 8 billion people. It's giving hope to 8 billion people. And so if it uses one quarter of 1% of the wasted energy, I would say that's probably the best single use of energy happening on our planet today. I'm gonna take a sip of water and then I've got one more of those. Yeah, I, I think it could probably even bump up to maybe at least 1% of the wasted energy and still be all right. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty cool and how, how it will really start to change things. Like we were, so we were talking about this earlier. We were in the spaces room, Nick Carter's uh, Twitter spaces room last night. And the president from El Salvador hopped in the room while they were voting on the bill and started talking to us. And we, or not we, um, someone on the stage asked about um, if they planned on mining. 
and gave a quick pitch on on mining Bitcoin and why the country of El Salvador should look to it. And he started talking about how they have geothermal energy from volcanoes um, that is stranded and about 50% of it gets wasted transporting it back to the the nation where it can be used. And then already within about 12 hours after that, he had a tweet out where he was announcing that they're basically putting together um, to start looking into mining Bitcoin with the geothermal power that is being stranded and wasted from the volcanoes. This wasted energy that would be just going useless to, to nobody because it does no good for humanity can start to be converted into Bitcoin and not take away from the power grid. And then it helps the country of El Salvador to have money in their treasury and their reserves to help their citizens. Now we start to look at countries like Iceland. Long time ago, Iceland ran into the same problem. They had tons of natural energy and nothing to do with it. So what did they do? They started producing aluminum because aluminum takes a ton of energy to produce. And so Iceland made it their mission to produce more aluminum, to use all of their energy and then sell that back into the grid, quote unquote, or the world. They can sell their aluminum to the world and get monetary value for the energy that they were wasting before. I'll let you go back because you were killing it before that. No, man, that, I think that's really important to bring up, right? That, that's the that's the, the quintessential historical analog to Bitcoin mining. They have too much energy and they can't export it. So they do an energy intensive process converted to a Beautiful. It's pretty much exactly the same, except you're not exporting a physical commodity of aluminum. You're exporting a digital commodity of Bitcoin. So now your costs are your costs are actually lower because you can send it immediately around the globe for practically free. Um, whereas if it's aluminum, you know you have to ship it and pay for shipping and molding and get it to the form of which what your end user wants. So there's so many benefits from what's going to be starting to happen with Bitcoin mining and renewables around the world. It's wonderful. To continue on the renewables front, um, the incentive here again for the miners is to find cheap energy which is almost always stranded or renewable or both, right? Hydro, stranded hydro is both renewable and stranded. Geothermal is the same, volcanic energy is the same. Um, and so what's interesting here is that um, people now have this incentive to find and produce energy cheaply. So anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are in the middle of the ocean, if you can somehow turn waves into energy at a low cost, you can mine Bitcoin. Okay, Bitcoin's the energy buyer of last resort. And what that means is now anyone can participate without anyone's permission to go innovate. So now there's this huge incentive to generate power at low cost. So now people are going to go actually go out there and figure out ways to generate power. So there's an incentive. Previously, we had to throw government subsidies at industries to try to get them to do things. And that's a hyper inefficient way to do it. There's all these externalities. Bitcoin, there's no externalities. It's go find it, go do it. The network pays you. And so I suspect we're going to have tremendous innovation in green energy tech, um, way more than any government subsidy could ever do. And over the long term, this is a very good thing. Um, there's so much energy on our planet that we're not harvesting. Um, and so, yeah, I think the long term is going to be very good. And there's a cool analogy here. And I'm going to drop some um, content I've never shared on a podcast before, which is about uh, my fifth article, forthcoming article about Bitcoin and mycelium, um, which is under the framing of pioneer species. 
Okay, so what that is from an ecology standpoint is, let's say uh, the question is, how do you go from a grassland to a forest? Okay, a grassland is essentially ungulates, uh, cows or buffalo or whatever, eating and pooping on the ground, which is very nutrient rich, which creates a grassland. Um, very different than a forest. Now, in order to go from a grassland to a forest, what, what happens is you have pioneer species, which are certain types of species that colonize a grassland and start the transformation process of turning it into a forest. Uh, one example would be a birch tree and a chaga mushroom. Those two show up and they just start transforming the ecosystem. And then over time, um, they make way for more complex organisms like an oak tree. Okay, where I live, an oak, for, uh, an oak savanna is kind of like the apex of our, our deciduous forest ecosystem. And so in that transition process, you know, you start with the pioneer species, gets more complex, and then eventually the birch tree is pushed out. And then the birch tree goes somewhere else and repeats the process. Um, looking at Bitcoin mining, the, the ability of Bitcoin miners are the pioneer species. Okay, so here's an example that's real life happening in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo right now. Um, they have a national park called Virunga. It's their, it's their um, largest national park. And it's one of their greatest economic uh, regions as well because people come to the country to go look at the nature. So it's an extremely important natural resource for the country, okay? Now, all the people who live around this natural park, they are very poor. And what they're doing is they're cutting down trees as an energy source to cook food, okay? And sadly, they're destroying the environment just to eat. I don't blame the folks, they should, I would do the same thing, um, but it sucks because you're destroying your natural resources just to cook food. So what the country's doing is the country is partnering with a mining company and they're building a hydroelectric dam in this region, which is very expensive. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna keep building up infrastructure around it and sell the energy to all the local people as this development thing. However, it's so expensive, they don't have a way to actually, they can't justify the capital expense of building this thing. So what they're doing is they're gonna plug in Bitcoin miners from day one, right before there's any demand and they're gonna sell all that energy to the Bitcoin network. So they're essentially monetizing their energy without a customer which is effectively a subsidy to create this energy asset, okay? That Bitcoin miner is the pioneer species. It's gonna come in there, monetize the energy asset as the ecosystem around the energy asset grows, as demand grows, as the population center grows, naturally the Bitcoin miners are gonna be pushed out because the end consumer will pay more for energy than the Bitcoin miners. So the Bitcoin miners pack up, throw the machines in the truck, go somewhere else, and then they'll go seed another energy asset and prepare it and, and monetize it, leading up to the maturity, the oak tree, which are the, the actual consumers. How Did I get that one out? I'm still working on this pitch. <laughs> you absolutely crushed that. Wow, that's uh, pretty incredible. I can't wait to read that. Um, man, that, that's some pretty, pretty wild stuff to really think about and consider um, the implications that that can have on especially developing nations as they're looking to expand the energy for their consumers um, and, Man, that's a lot to take in, but that's pretty cool to start to think about. I, I can't wait to see where that goes and read your piece on, on it as well. Um, really quick. And I thought while I had... thinking, oh, go for while it. you're thinking, um, what's interesting about this one is it's pro-environment, okay? Because it's instead of the local people chopping down trees, they're getting energies directly to their house. 
So you're going to save the environment. It's economic development. You're giving these folks energy, and they're also giving people who within, live near the park free energy. So they're getting economic development. Now they don't have to spend half their day chopping down trees and cooking with wood. They have electricity in their homes, um, which frees up time for other things. So it's pro-environment, pro-economic development. Um, might be one other important thing that I'm, I'm missing now, but it's, it's a holistic solution to a problem and that nothing exists on our planet that can solve this other than Bitcoin. That's pretty incredible. And I did remember, so thanks for giving me time to think. Um, before we jump off the, inner, uh, the energy topic and go move over a little bit, can you talk about how flare gas is doing this in the United States? Because, you know, a lot of the, the things that we read are local and what, what's going on within the United States. And I know flare gas is one way that we're really pushing development within the energy or the Bitcoin mining um, realm stateside. And so I'd love to for you to touch on that briefly, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to bring this up. This one's complicated and I can see why if you just glance at it, you go, is that actually good? Um, but here's why it is. So um, a, a lot of our oil and gas production comes from uh, shale, um, which is a type of, uh, it's a way to, to mine oil. It's a type of oil reserve in North Dakota and West Texas are the most popular. So you go down there, you drill, you find some oil. As you're pulling up oil, there's two byproducts, natural gas and methane. Natural gas is also useful. Um, humans use it all the time. But the problem is natural gas is so cheap that these producers cannot economically ship it somewhere to a consumer. And so they have all this nat gas. They don't really know what to do with it. And they have this methane. And methane is also really cheap. So there's really no customers. And methane is very bad for the environment. And so what they normally do is they just vent or they flare the methane. So they burn it or they just literally let it go in the air. And that's not great. And so instead what they're gonna do is they're gonna burn it and turn it into electricity and then use that electricity to mine Bitcoin. And so instead of just letting it go, they're gonna burn it. Right now they flare it, right? Which is essentially burning it, but that's only about 70% efficient. And so all this mumbo jumbo aside, Essentially, what it's going to do is they're going to turn that waste product of methane, burn that to mine Bitcoin. And that's better for the environment because you're not venting it and you're not flaring it. Um, and so pro-environment there, it's energy. It's an energy source that's otherwise wasted. So it's essentially free for the Bitcoin miners. And then simultaneously, it's good for the oil and gas producers because most states have a ratio that the, the producers have to abide by, which essentially says, for every 100 barrels of oil you pull out, you may flare or vent one barrel of methane. I made up the ratio, but it's, it's some ratio. And so because they can't vent very much and they can't sell the natural gas, there's a bottleneck in oil and gas producers, but this is a responsible use of the methane. And so it allows oil and gas producers to be more flexible in their business, to be more profitable. So they love it. It's good for the environment. It's good for the Bitcoin mining network. And there's tons of this all over the United States. Uh, I think there's roughly 10 times the amount of um, potential flared gas and methane than the Bitcoin mining network needs. So theoretically, we could run the whole network on, on flare gas. That's perfect. Thank you for touching on that. And uh, really quick, just to clarify for some of the listeners, um, you mentioned methane released to the environment and then 
flare gas released into the environment and then burning it to mine Bitcoin. Um, when Brandon says burning it to mine Bitcoin, that means running it through a combustion engine and burning it in that form. Um, do you know the stats on how much cleaner that is when it's run through an engine? Yeah, I, I think it's very, very similar in terms of the output of burn versus uh, through the genset, uh, the generator. Um, but the difference is that when you, so there's two things they do. They, they just bent it, which literally just means let it go in the air. That's the worst. Um, the next best is flared. So if you ever go by an, uh, an oil and gas production, you'll see a big tower and you'll see a little flame at the top. That's them releasing it. And then there's this little pilot light at the top that burns the methane on the way out. But the problem with that is it's not very efficient and tons of methane escapes. So it's a little bit better than just letting it go in the air. Now, the absolute best is you put it into a um, combustion engine in, in a way that, you know, you just pipe it in through a combustion engine. So you combust like 99.99999% of it versus like 70%. And so that's where the Bitcoin mining part is better for the environment. Does that make sense? Per yep. Perfect. Thanks for touching on that. Just wanted to clarify for those back home. So totally. We went, we went through a lot there. Um, I really, really like the way you, you framed, you know, everything with the, the mushrooms and the networks um, and then the energy side. Now, something else that you've done quite a lot of research on um, that I would love to turn our focus on now is the fourth turning. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about what is the idea of the fourth turning and, you know, kind of what, what you've seen in your research on that? Yeah, for sure. So The Fourth Turning is a book written in the late 90s, actually very similar published date as uh, The Sovereign Individual, which we mentioned earlier. And The Fourth Turning is written by two authors who look at history and demographics as their lens to understand the world. And what they found through deep study in this, in this field is that there are human cycles that continue to reappear over and over and over again throughout history. And the primary cycle that they observed, they call the saculum, which is, I think it's a Greek word or I don't know, some old language word, but essentially it means a long human life. And so these are like 80 to 90 year cycles, okay? And what they're finding is that every 80 to 90 year cycle, you have this, this blow off, explosive, violent, chaotic period, followed by a period of peace and rebuilding, et cetera. And there's a lot of ways to examine this, but um, the primary thing to look at is uh, it's, it's an emergent cycle through archetypes that continue to reappear throughout history. And an easy way to think about it in my mind is like, so the end of World, World War II, uh, 1929 to 1945, that was the last chaotic period, the quote, fourth turning aspect. So there's four sections in each cycle. Fourth turning is the crazy one. 1929 to 1945 was the last one. That's a period, that's a great depression that is World War II, um, that is Bretton Woods. We have a new financial system. That's all kinds of change, okay, a period of volatility. Right after that, we had a period of stagnation. This is the 50s and the early 60s. This is like white picket fence, leave it to beaver, et cetera. So we went from chaos mode to very steady mode, okay? That's the first turning. Then the second turning, the, all the kids who grew up in that super boring time um, think like, if your parents are really sterile or you grew up in like a Catholic school and then you go to college, a lot of those kids kind of rebel and they push against the boring, sterile aspect and they just want to lash out. That's the baby boomers. That's the consciousness revolution. 
And that's a natural process, right? Humans, as you get older, you rebel against your parents. And so it's, it's cycles like this that build up into this big picture view. And there's, it's, it's not easy to get out in a, in a simple sense, but I think the most compelling pitch is that history um, and generations have a symbiotic relationship. And what I mean by that is um, history is like the context. So let's say we're millennials. We're all born at the same time and our environments are relatively similar. And so you can sort of make broad sweeping generalizations about the millennial generation simply due to the fact that we are all born in a similar time. Okay, so we're all kind of similar. Then we grow up and again, as a similar group, and now we start pushing back on history and we start acting in a, in a predictable way and we start changing the world in a predictable way. So that's history um, affecting the generation, that's us, and then the generations affecting history. That's the cycle that happens over and over again. And to bring it to modern times, we're right in the middle of another fourth turning. So the analog again, 1929 to 1945. And this is a period with massive chaos. This is when we essentially realize all of our institutions are crumbling and it's time to fix them. So if you look around the world, you see everything's, everything's messed up. Our, our politics are, are nonsense, our healthcare is nonsense, our schools nonsense, culture is nonsense, everything's crumbling. And people are starting to realize that it's a problem. Also economic inequality is that the highest it's been um, since the Great Depression. And so it's a period of, um, you know, the, out the exterior world's broken and it's time to fix it. And historically these have ended in total war. So the previous fourth turning was World War II, um, the American Revolution, sorry, the Civil War, and then the American Revolution going backwards. And so now the question is, are we, are we going to go through another serious conflict like the previous three, four turnings? And I don't know the answer to that question, but as a listener, what I would be expecting is tremendous volatility. Somewhere between now and 2030, I expect us to transition out of the fourth turning into a period of peace, the first turning. And what we need here is the world to come together and to make wide sweeping changes. And so I expect a lot of change. I expect a new financial system. I expect dramatically different uh, fluctuations in world power. Um, we might see new nation states rise. We might see nations fall. We might see sort of the pieces on the geopolitical board be shuffled. And I also expect a lot of winners and a lot of losers. And so if I'm looking at this, this thesis, I'm looking at Bitcoin as a useful tool here. And the primary reason is because Bitcoin is quote FU money. Um, if things go bad, you can take your Bitcoin and cross the border, no problem. If the government wants to you know, steal from their citizens, which happens frequently throughout history, uh, money in the bank is very vulnerable. Your property is very vulnerable. Your physical your land is very vulnerable because they can just show up, but your Bitcoin is safe. And so I'd be looking at optionality. I'd be looking at the ability to move if you have to. I'd be looking at having protection. I would be finding networks of like-minded people and essentially just prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Uh, that's a mouthful. Again, uh, I'll, let, I'll let you jump in here. Uh, that, that was a great overview of, of what it looks like. Um, one thing that I think you've talked about in the past that's you know pretty powerful is the archetypes that are involved in the fourth turning and how that overlays with our generations. Do you think you could touch on that a little bit um, here about you know how that how that works and how it plays out throughout history, and then you know how you 
you see that in the current generations that are you know populating the environment yeah absolutely so the the authors here they've identified four different archetypes and each archetype is uh they go in a sequential order so it goes profit nomad hero artist profit nomad hero artist and generations are roughly 20 to 22 years long and so each generation is assigned an archetype right and going back to that analogy where like parents rebel against their uh, or the kids rebel against their parents so let's see if we go back to the world war ii time okay those were the artists the the, the uh, middle-aged people during world war ii are the artist archetype and the kids born actually let, let, sorry right after world war ii um, so 1940s, 50s, early 60s, those were uh, middle-aged people were artists. They had kids of that were prophets, okay? And you know that they're prophets because during a period of um, peacetime, you have these new kids born. So the baby boomers are born in peacetime. Everything's given to them. It's easy. Everyone wants to cooperate, right? So the context of a prophet archetype is peacetime and prosperity. So they, they're raised in this peace, pros, peaceful, prosperous time, which leads to them rebelling when they come of age, okay? And then the next archetype after the prophet, the baby boomers, is the nomad. This The nomads are born in a period of decline. So this is from like two, 83 to 2008. This is deregulation. This is the Lakshki kids. This is the... Um, a period of underparenting because the, the parents are selfish. And that's what produces a nomad archetype. These are the bad boys. These are the individuals. These are the libertarians. These are the, you know, grit and get it done type folks. So they're born during a decline. And then you have the hero. Those are Gen Xs. Then you have the hero archetype. That's the millennials. These are folks who are born during a fourth turning. And I'm sorry, during a, during a, a third turning again more decline um, and so heroes are, are the people who are born when it's bad but the people realize hey we got to do something about this um, the young people are bad we have to we have to fix that so the pendulum swings again and the young people are overparented. and so that's the hero the kind of competent team players and they come of age during a fourth turning which is where we are now so historically the heroes are the, the soldiers in these major wars and that's where you see millennials, um, they're all kind of like, instead of going to physical war, we're like warring over the culture. So millennials are responsible for like cancel culture and um, coming together. And it's a perceived threat. We, we know things are messed up and we don't have a war to fight. So instead we collectivize and we essentially say, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so that's the impulse with cancel culture is it's seeing people that don't play by the cultural rules and shunning them. That's kind of how, how it's playing out, um, which is frustrating. And then you have the artists, which are the Gen Z kids, and they grow up during a crisis. So they grow up when everything's totally messed up and it's just chaos. And so they're kind of withdrawn, inward, um, fearful, kind of just like subdued, you know, like don't rock the boat because everything's crazy. And then he brings you back up to the top to the, to the to profits again. Um, it's, it's what I will say about this is I don't think I did a good job explaining it. I think reading the first third of the article I wrote will give the, this thesis a little bit more context. 
because it, it's not easy to grasp in any short period of time. Definitely. Um, that again, will be linked in the show notes. So check out the article. Um, he does a wonderful job of explaining this. And so Brandon, how do we see Bitcoin playing into the fourth turning cycles? Yes, yes, yes. Good Actually, question. really quick, before we jump into that, I think there's one more thing that we should probably touch on um, with the fourth turning and how it works. So is, is the fourth turning theory and thesis, is this a global thesis or a United States thesis? And is this playing out globally or locally? Yeah, great, great question. So the authors wrote it looking specifically at uh, the United States. Um, however, what I would say is that this is the first fourth turning where the world is totally synced up globally. And so if you look throughout the world, you're seeing populism rise all over the place, which is a very characteristic um, sign in fourth turnings. You've got the yellow vest movement. You've got, um, you've got these crazy leaders like Duterte in the Philippines. You've got signs in China. Um, all over the world, you see populism. And so it's my belief that the world is synced up on this cycle. And that's kind of due to after World War II, we, we essentially created a global, the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And so, yeah, it's my belief that it's global, which adds some chaos to the, to the system here because it means that, you know, what happens if everyone's on the same cycle? Does that add to the volatility? It seems that it would. And so I, I'm, I'm seeing a potential risk of the US versus China as kind of the apex of this fourth turning. China is becoming big enough now. They're the number one net importer of commodities. So they're, they're a powerhouse. Um, they want to be treated as such. And they're very technologically advanced and they're ambitious. So they're spreading their technology, their, their vision of the future very fast throughout the world. And I could see just as the US is starting to decline, financial system needs to be replaced. China wants to be a part of it. Um, the U.S. would like to stay in power, so there's there's a natural tension there, and at the same time we have Bitcoin, and so I see one really important thing here is what is the future of the financial system, and most people are not aware of this, but we're totally ripping replacing the financial system within the next five to fifteen years, and this is not some conspiracy theorist Bitcoin idea. This is what the World Economic Forum, the IMF, the World Bank, all our world leaders are all talking about this. If you've heard the words the Great Reset or build back better, or you'll own nothing and be happy, right? Or we need to modernize our economy. All these things are PR, AKA propaganda from our, our super national organizations who see the inevitable end of our financial system and they wanna be in charge of building the new system. And these are not people that are friendly to individuals. These are people who treat individuals as cattle or as sheep. And so there's one vision of the future led by these psychopaths. And I mean that like clinically, um, the billionaires, the Davos class, the people who, who do not treat us well, they, they have one vision of the future. Now we have another vision of the future, which is China, very similar to the Davos class. And then we have a third vision of the future, which is led by the Bitcoin community. And the Bitcoin community wants open source, community ethos, money for the people, by the people, you know, totally, totally distributed power instead of increased power. And so this is kind of the fulcrum of the next decade. It's going to be individualism versus collectivism. Both China and the World Economic Forum, they want this like techno 
uh, state that the super powerful mega state that knows all, and they're going to have a money that reflects that. And I think that's very bad for individuals uh, to use a concrete example in China. If they do not like your political views, they can just turn your money off. Uh, they can turn your passport off. Right. And you don't want a world where that's the, the, the ability for the government to control you. We're in a Bitcoin world. It actually empowers the individual and that forces the state to be a good shepherd of the people and which is what we want. And so I see Bitcoin as a, uh, a life raft. Actually, um, I see a great monetary flood to use a biblical analogy, shit sitting the fan and without Bitcoin, we're going to that world. That is the default path. And without Bitcoin, there's literally nothing we can do. That's that's the future we're going to be handed. And so Bitcoin's kind of this life raft or this escape hatch that allows individuals to say, I don't like that future. I'm going to preserve my wealth, my resources in a parallel system that cannot be messed with. It also allows corporations to say, I don't want to go down the ship. It allows states like El Salvador to say, we're not benefiting the current system. We're going to get out of Bitcoin standard. And so it acts as a pressure release valve, which I believe will reduce the risk of violence because it allows people to make a choice. It allows people to get off the ship. And that makes me very optimistic. And kind of to sum this up, there's only two ways to coordinate society at scale. And that is through free markets or through force. Okay, China and the World Economic Forum, they, they're choosing force. They're, they're gonna say, I'm telling you what to do. Bitcoin says, we're gonna allow free markets to coordinate society at scale, which is a far more um, rosy view of the future as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's kind of how I see Bitcoin playing in. And on the individual level, buy some. That, that's your protection during this period of chaos. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't necessarily go all in, um, although that's a reasonable choice, but I wouldn't recommend people to do that if they're just learning about this thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a great way to look at it um, with just how much different things going on globally that there is. And one thing that I was thinking about the other day is with forest fires. We, we see a lot in California and Oregon, for example, um, they don't do small burnings anymore. And so when forest fires happen, they're just these huge forest fires that get out of control very quickly. And, you know, it comes back to nature again. Um, if you don't let small fires happen and burn out, then bigger ones are going to come down the line. And that's the way I look at the 2008 economic crisis, because if the government would have let the banks fail that needed to fail, um, who overextended themselves, I think it could have really changed the future um, pretty drastically, in my opinion. I could be wrong. Um, you might disagree with me there, but I think it would have had a drastic impact on what would have happened over the last 12 to 14 years. But they didn't. They bailed the banks out. They pumped in money. And what that's done is since then, they haven't been able to stop pumping in money. I'd love to hear your opinion on um, that and how it kind of relates back to the nature with the forest fires, um, if you think it does at all. Yeah, I think you I think you set you framed it up perfectly. Um, and you're right. So let, let's just go no analogy first. Um, when we have these large financial collapses, there are winners and losers. And historically, in these examples, the little guy gets screwed. So in 08, what happened? Um, little guy lost their house and all the house market went down. And then all the corporations bought up the houses for cheap. 
Okay, if they get bailed out at the corporate or the bank level, individuals get screwed. Okay, so as a society, we do not want these mega crashes. These mega crashes destroy capital. And what I mean by capital, I don't just mean like money and bank accounts. I mean capital as in human capital, organizational capital, right? In order to build a good business, it takes years of aligning the right people, the right supply chain, the right resources. All of that gets wiped out in these mega crashes. And the reason why we have these mega crashes is because central banking is in charge of the economy. And what central banking is, is the idea that um, you can just put smart people in a room and they then have the ability to steer the economy. They can manage an economy. And that is the most hubristic idea I've ever heard. That is humans pretending to be God, when in reality, the economy is infinitely complex. Going back to mycelium, it's a bajillion different individual people, individual decisions every single day. Do I eat there or do I eat over there? Do I spend? Do I save? Right? Everyone's making these economic calculations. And you add all that up, and that's what the economy is. And so it's, a, it's fundamentally a data problem. You cannot manage it. Now, what central banking does is they try to steer this thing. And inevitably, like you said, they bail out banks when in reality, they, might, they probably should have let them fail. Right? It would have been short-term pain, but it's better long-term in order to allow the market to act in the way that's natural. And so we're artificially managing the economy, which has the net effect of suppressing volatility. We kick the can down the road. We don't let things fail. And what that does is it builds up volatility over time. The problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger until one day it explodes and there's nothing you can do and that's a way, right? A little tiny thing set it off and the whole thing implodes. Where in Bitcoin terms, um, having an economy run on Bitcoin is essentially the, the realization that an economy is too complex to manage so we should allow the emergent properties of an economy to manage itself, which sounds scary, but it's actually effective. And what that does is it reduces that volatility. It increases cooperation, it increases the, 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 the feedback loop. It increases data fidelity. It allows information to travel through the economy with a correct signal, right? If you're distorting the economy constantly with all these artificial inputs, everyone's decision-making is poor. So you're essentially saying it's like, driving down the highway drunk, looking out the rear view mirror. That's what central banking is. Um, good luck, right? Even on your best day, you're gonna do pretty bad. It's not possible. And so Bitcoin is not like that. Um, so to your forest fire analogy, that, that's a very apt one, right? Um, you should have uh, small fires all the time that clear out the underbrush. And when you have these small natural fires, what it does is it prevents the mega fire. And central banking is essentially uh, neglecting that and instead allowing these mega fires, which cause way more harm than these small ones that are natural. And another analogy here is looking at an industrial farm versus a old growth forest. So the fiat economy is an industrial farm. It's hyper efficient. Um, it's also very fragile, right? If they're all the same species, all the inputs are there. So if one uh, one fungi decides they know how to eat wheat. All the wheat crop in the world is decimated overnight, right? So it's efficient, but it's vulnerable. Um, and that's just what our economy is like. Uh, it's hyper-efficient, but one little problem and the whole house of cards breaks. Uh, if you look at a old growth forest, 
right? This is incremental growth. This is hyper-competitive. It's not as efficient. It takes a long time to develop, but it's very resilient. There's a lot of the economic actors. If one fungi learns how to take down a specific tree, fine. One tree dies, but the forest is so complex, um, it doesn't really matter. And that's that's how Bitcoin is, right? It's, it's anti-fragile. And it's very hard to attack. It's very hard to stop. But it's not this hyper-efficient process. It's more sustainable. It's more natural. And so when you look at economy, um, it's better to have an economy built on old growth forests rather than GMO industrial crops. And over time, it, it will have a smoothing out effect of these cycles. Like cycles are natural in nature, right? But in, you want natural cycles that are smooth. You don't want these artificial cycles that cause tremendous consequences. Definitely. So we can look at, you know, like the long-term debt cycle um, on theory popularized by Ray Dalio and then the fourth turning. And it appears that, you know, we're kind of in both of these cycles at the same time. Um, and I believe you've talked about, there's one other cycle and I, I could be misspeaking now, um, but I believe there's one other cycle that you've spoken about before that we're all kind of entering these three cycles at the same time. Has that ever happened before? And can you touch on that a little bit? Yes, yes, yes. Good point. So Fourth turn into dem demography, long-term debt cycle, Ray Dalio popularized, is essentially every 80, 90 years or so, um, we have to redo the financial system. That's the net of it. Um, another cycle could be the sovereign individual, which they're identifying the transition between the industrial age and the information age. And that transition alone has tremendous consequences. We're going through that, right? So yeah, we have all three cycles at the same time. As far as I know, um, it's never happened exactly. Um, but the important thing here is that these cycles are not scientifically precise, right? They're, they're just lenses to view the world. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting about your question is that um, we're seeing the, the financial system need to be replaced. It has to, there's no, there's no alternative. And we're also seeing the demographics that support massive change. And so, what, what, that, what that leads me to believe is that the financial transition is going to be chosen and steered by the demographics of our time. And so what that means is people want to collectivize and they want to create a solution that's good for many people instead of the single few. That's just what the millennials want. That's what time is in the fourth turning. We want to cooperate. And so I think Bitcoin is the perfect implementation of a fourth turning money. We're in a period of high volatility and people are begging for low volatility. Okay, so Bitcoin will absorb the volatile financial markets and turn into this simple base layer, consistent, uh, sturdy protocol upon which we can build higher in the future. That's very important. And Bitcoin's also money by the people for the people. There's no leaders. There are rules, but there are no rulers. That's a very millennial concept, a decentralized thing. Everyone's voice matters, et cetera, et cetera. And Bitcoin is the perfect implementation of that. And so I think as young people realize what this Bitcoin thing is, they're going to realize that their values, um, both like as a generation, but also in the context of this time is, is mapped perfectly to Bitcoin. So it solves the social problem of we need more stability. We need new institutions and it solves the financial problem of we need a new financial system. And to me, you map those two together. It gives me tremendous confidence that Yes, we're going to go through a dark time. Yes, the volatility is going to be crazy. 
but Bitcoin's the leading horse here in this transition, right? History is not written, but to me, it's very clear that Bitcoin is the front runner. And I'd be surprised if Bitcoin wasn't the dominant financial asset in 10, 15 years. Couldn't agree more. I think you nailed that on the head. And I think, you know, one thing that you've spoken about a lot is that I think is really intriguing is Bitcoin was born out of the volatility of 2008, 2009. And now it's starting to come of age as we go through this next fourth turning. And so it'd be interesting to see, you know, what we can do with it and what it can do with society um, as it really comes of age into these, this next step. Um, it, it's just going to be, a, there's going to be a lot of crazy times ahead uh, to say the least, but I, th I think the future looks bright because of the way in which we can harness the power that Bitcoin can bring to humanity. It, it's pretty intriguing how, you know, like you talked about within the, the DRC with the, the, the dam, you know, we're going to bring power to humanity in places that, you know, shouldn't be able to and power in more than just the ways of energy, like physical power, because they're going to have monetary goods and be connected to the economy for the first time in their lives. Because nowadays with just a cell phone and an, an internet connection, which is becoming more and more readily available, um, we're going to be able to connect everyone to a bank. And I, I saw a stat the other day was there's 1.8 billion people without banks in the world, but 1.1 of the 1.1 billion of those people have access to a cell phone. So if we can get, you know, Bitcoin and all the people who have cell phones hands, we're closing the gap of the unbanked in the economy and in society, which as we've proven throughout history, as when people can become banked and have access to the financial economy, they're going to improve their, their livelihood and their just everything about their living is going to improve through that. Then, so kind of, we've touched on a lot of topics, you know, before we're done, there's one last direction I kind of want to go. Um, can we talk about great filters? And you spoke about how Bitcoin could be like interplanetary money um, at the beginning. So I want to kind of talk first about like, what is great filters? And then maybe you know, can have a little fun and start talking about the, the planets. I love this topic. So I, I thought uh, you might. <laughs> um, the great filter is a theory that essentially it, it, it answers the question of if space is so large, where are all the other forms of life? Shouldn't we have found them by now? Right. So we asked that question. The great filter theory essentially says, well, it, it theorizes that maybe there are these important stages in life's evolution that are really hard to overcome. So for example, maybe when life becomes complex enough to invent nuclear bombs, they rarely survive very long because they accidentally blow themselves up. Or maybe it's really, really hard to colonize a new planet other than your own planet so that complex life never really gets off their own rock. Or maybe the great filters way earlier and it's actually really hard to go from single celled organisms to complex life or something like that, right? You can just think of these periods where it's like a zero to one moment in evolution and most life dies out at that challenging point. And so um, the, the, the next question is with tying this back to Bitcoin and how, how I framed this in a previous article is that um, the great filter for cryptocurrencies is actually the ability to survive a nation state level attack. And why this makes sense is there's 10, 20,000 of them right now, however many, and it doesn't really matter to launch this this tiny little project, right? It's permissionless innovation. Anyone can create a, a cryptocurrency. It doesn't mean they'll have value, but anyone can. 
Um, however, it doesn't really make sense to like squash all these little tiny bugs, who cares? And so the only way that it matters is, you know, as, as these cryptocurrencies become large enough, uh, eventually they're gonna take power away from governments and central banks. It's inevitable if they succeed. And so at a certain point, they become large enough to attract the attention of the governments. And then maybe, maybe a government says, we don't like this, we're gonna attack it, we're gonna try to shut it down. And so if, if a cryptocurrency cannot feasibly survive a nation state level attack, I think that it's completely irrelevant because it needs, it needs to survive that attack um, because I believe that's what the great filter of cryptocurrencies is. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a guaranteed state versus Bitcoin head-to-head -head battle, but all that needs to happen is for the state to look at Bitcoin and say, oof, this looks really hard to attack. We might not be able to stop it. Maybe we shouldn't attack it. And it's my belief that we're already at that point with Bitcoin, um, not with any of the other coins. And so I see Bitcoin as kind of too big to fail, but too small to really be geopolitically significant. However, I have a feeling we're going to start to really accelerate with all the LATAM countries starting to adopt Bitcoin. And so it could happen really fast here. It's really hard to speculate uh, on timing with this stuff. And so that's how I see the great filter. Uh, any comments there? And we can talk about space a little bit as well. Yeah, it, it's funny. Like, you know, this has been a topic in the Bitcoin community for, probably, you know, a year, a couple of years now um, with the great filter being like the state level attack. And then just yesterday we have a state adopting Bitcoin. Um, and so it's very intriguing to now, like, like we talked about earlier, the game theory is really going to start to play out. Um, are other states going to attack Bitcoin and try and it, in turn attack El Salvador um, with a monetary attack? Or are they going to start to embrace it? And then the more states that embrace it, the less likely an attack is from another state because it would, you know, piss off more and more states. So it, it's really fun to kind of start playing with these ideas. Um, so was what's interesting to me about the great filter theory is we've either already passed it or we haven't got there yet and we don't know. So with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, I mean, only Bitcoin, um, was the first great filter for that being able to create a decentralized cryptocurrency? And then, you know, because because right now as, as humans, we if we're looking back, um, I would personally say the first great filter for humans was creating a money in a language. Um, you know, whichever order they probably language than money. Um, and then from there, you can look at, you know, the printing press and whatever, the, these things throughout history that have really advanced civilizations, flight, um, you know, and those, those types of moments, the internet, and like you mentioned, the nuclear bombs. So before we get to humans, let's talk about the money. So with cryptocurrency is the first one, um, you know, creating it in general, and then from there, what are what are the other ones before nation state? And then after nation state, are, are there any? Yeah, I love this question. And I, I actually haven't thought about this. But what comes to mind immediately is that um, there's this misconception that Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. And there's this idea that, well, MySpace was first and then Facebook won. So, you know, the new ones are going to be better. But the reality is that cypherpunks, libertarians, internet people, internet nerds, protocol people, they were trying to build money on the internet for like 20 or 30 years before Bitcoin was launched. And all those projects failed. And they failed for things like centralization or the technology is not ready, or they just didn't have it right. And what's interesting about that is, 
okay, maybe Satoshi passed the great filter. And what he had to do was stitch all these pieces together and he finally got the incentives right. But you could try millions of ideas and not get the incentives right. And so I think that actually was probably um, a good candidate for a great filter. Um, after the point we are, after that point, until the point of Bitcoin, you could say um, maybe having an actual dollar value. So for the first like year and a half, there was no price to a Bitcoin. It was just tokens for fun. And so then someone bought, you know, Laszlo bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins a long time ago, whatever famous example. And so that's, that's proof to the market that these tokens actually are money in some way. Um, that could be another, I would say a much less hurdle compared to the zero to one innovation of creating Bitcoin. Um, and I think at this point, I don't, I don't see any obstacles between now and a nation state level attack that are even remotely close. Like, yeah, you have to change the consciousness. Yes, people have to um, understand why Bitcoin's valuable and that takes time, blah, blah, blah. But I think all that's pretty straightforward and linear growth where this, the real step function was launching Bitcoin and getting it right. So if there isn't one between now and nation state attack, which I would agree with you, is there anything after nation state attack that we could look at as... You know, it's hard to even theorize right now because we haven't got there yet. And like that is the thing about the great filter is, is, is there a final level to it? Um, it's, it's, it's such an intriguing theory because after a nation state attack, when I think Bitcoin will pass that, um, I wonder if there's anything else that will come to at that point. Yeah, the only thing that comes to mind here is, um, you know, there's a future where Bitcoin survives a nation state level attack. It's maybe worth 50 trillion or something like that. So 50x from here or something. And it still doesn't become base money, right? That's a potential future. Bitcoin could just become this digital gold type thing that people use internationally and it's useful on the internet, but nation states choose to have their own money, uh, their own fiat money in the future. That's a potential outcome. And if that's the case, then, okay, fine. Bitcoin is just this asset that people use as a savings account, but it's not the whole world basing Bitcoin as the base financial system. Um, I think that's the only thing I can think of um, until we, we talk about space. Yeah, so maybe, maybe the next one would be um, each individual country's fiat is pegged to Bitcoin and take it back away from being a fiat and we get back to a peg system. Um, with because like like you just mentioned, I probably don't know if I see fee or government money going away anytime in the very near future at all. So each government will probably continue to have their own money, but what they could do is start pegging it. So you know, X amount of dollars equals X amount of Bitcoin, and if they print more dollars, they have to have more Bitcoin in reserves um, because hopefully they've learned from the sins of our fathers, and we don't commit the same the same mistakes that we've made throughout history as a civilization again. That's right. So, that's right. Okay. So, so now the fun part, um, why don't you take it away with, you know, like the human side of the great filter and what that means for space and, you know, just have, have a little fun with that. I want to see where your mind goes with that. Yeah. So the first thing to think about is that Bitcoin is space money. Um, it's a, it, that's also a series written by Drew Bansall who works for Unchained Capital. Um, I consider him a friend. We've had many a cosmic conversation. Um, if any of the space stuff's interesting, read his stuff. He works at Unchained Capital. He's a, he's a boss. 
Um, so, okay, humans, in my opinion, humans need to colonize a new planet in order to reduce the risk of our species going extinct. I think if we successfully have a self-sustaining colony on Mars, I don't think humans will die out uh, for thousands and thousands of years. But if we can't get off our rock, I think our risk of, of dying out is much higher. Um, so let's go, let's go to Mars. Um, now the next question is, what role does Bitcoin play here? So um, now we're starting to get a little bit of physics. So initially, what I think will happen is we'll colonize Mars and we'll use something like the Lightning Network to make transactions as money on Mars. And the hard part with the distance between Mars and Earth is it's, it's very far and Bitcoin's block time. So every 10 minutes on average, miners find a new block. And the, the hard part is Earth and Mars are so far apart that you couldn't put a miner on Mars because they're, the blocks that they find, would, there's, it would take too long to send them back to Earth. And so Dhruv identified something called a sphere of hash, which essentially says, um, if all the miners are on Earth, then you have to stay pretty close to Earth in order to be competitive with mining due to the time it takes to transmit the signal upon finding the block. And so you could have miners in space um, floating around in between Earth and Mars, but you can't have miners on Mars. So what that ultimately leads to is you must have a deferred settlement network. So a, a lightning network or similar, so not on chain on Mars, and you can periodically settle your transactions back with Earth. And his theory is that that's good in the short term, but eventually Mars is going to want to be their own colony, right? Their own self-sovereign entity, which if you look through history, every time there's a colony, eventually the people want to break off. I understand that. And so once Mars breaks off from the U.S. and they want to be their own thing, they're going to realize that, oh, shit, our money is susceptible because all the miners are on Earth. So we need to create our own coin. And so Drew theorizes that eventually they're going to launch Musk coin, right? And nod to Elon Musk, uh, which would be its own proof of work coin launched there. And I think that makes sense, right? And then you can have settlement between the nations and Musk coin and, and, and Bitcoin. Um, and then he also takes it one step further and he looks at an incentive to colonize new stars. So right now, Let's say we have the technology to travel to a new star. It might take hundreds of years. Let's say we have a spaceship that can take you and we have the ability to like cryo sleep for hundred years and wake up when you're there. What's the incentive to sleep for hundred years, say goodbye to everything you've ever known to go to the unknown and you show up and you'll probably have a horrible life when you try to colonize a new place. Pretty bad. However, if there's a model where wherever you land, you're the first people to create a proof of work coin to, to launch the new coin, you'll be the first people who become wealthy because you're able to mine the coin first as you start to reproduce. So that's kind of a, an inbuilt incentive to convince people to shoot the moon and go to a new colony. It's, it's wild to think about, you know, just the future of, of humans. And as they, you know, we, we start to colonize and, or, you know, like Bezos and, uh, Musk are trying to colonize Mars at the end of the day. That's what they're trying to do. You know, they want to go down in history as the man who put people on Mars because they would literally go down in history and cement their name um, upon, upon the books. So what I think, you know, obviously the, the first case is when Bitcoin is 
the global currency and they go to the moon, you know, just like you mentioned, I think you'd probably deposit, you know, X amount of Bitcoin onto a side chain that would run while you're on Mars. And then when you come back, you would, you know, put it back on main chain. So you'd have two main chain transactions. Mars would have the Mars side chain. And then over time, like you said, they would, you know, get, get their own currency. Do you think, you know, before that though, do you think Bitcoin can actually help humans take the next step um, in the great filtering event and actually get to Mars? Great question. I think the answer is clearly yes. And going back to the nation state analogy, we're essentially fighting over resources country to country and we're stuck. And what Bitcoin does is allows us to cooperate cross borders, no matter where you are. And space gives us a new goal, a goal that transcends nation state nonsense, right? There's always been the westward expansion or the new frontier, and that gives humans a goal rather than fight each other. And so I think Mars itself is kind of a focusing tool that allows us to um, you know, play big instead of squabble of resources. And I think what Bitcoin does is it allows us to use our resources more effectively. It will cause an increase in capital allocation uh, and, and an efficiency, I should say, increase in capital allocation. We'll have a better economy. So better money means everything downstream in the economy is better. And so I think we'll have um, a better economy. So more capital we will bring more people online, which makes us more prosperous, more intelligent, more cooperative, which is going to be needed to shoot the moon and go to Mars. Um, and simultaneously with um, Bitcoin itself, like what we're we going to have paper money or gold in space, right? Like we, we need this digital thing to work and we need to transcend the nation state. And we also need to be more efficient. We need more human capital. And so, I, yeah, I think it's a perfect combination. And then if you also combine all the new energy production technology, we'll find that also kind of plays nicely. So to me, it it's very obviously a useful brick in the in our in our endeavor to become a multi-planet species. It's crazy to think how this network that is Bitcoin can actually push humanity and our civilization forward rather than just fixing the money as it looks like it is on the surface level and as you dive deeper into it what it could actually mean for us as humans as a whole. It's wild and it's pretty cool to think about. But Brandon, I think we're kind of running out of time a little bit here. So um, anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Let's see. Nothing's coming to mind, but I would say to, to the general audience, you know, we, we were talking pre-interview a little bit and how this is part of your Bitcoin journey and how these interviews will be useful to others who are, who are falling down the rabbit hole. And what I, what I would say to those folks is, to attack Bitcoin or approach Bitcoin from the side of it that's most interesting to you. Um, because Bitcoin is like a prism. You know, you can look through the prism and see all the, the, the pretty colors. So your angle, your perspective, your own biases, they will alter what you see in Bitcoin. And so if you're into economics, great, go that route. If you're in the energy side, do that, no problem. You know, if there's another side that interests you, just pursue that. and. Like any intellectual endeavor in my mind, it's only worthwhile if you're very interested in it. Like if, if someone tries to get me to learn about, I don't know, insert a subject I don't care about, it's gonna be pulling teeth for me to learn about it. But if I find an angle that's interesting to me, now all of a sudden I'm choosing to learn. And so 
that, that's what I would say to new people is if you're interested at all, is just find the angle that works for you and just discard the rest. It's okay. They don't, they don't have to be interesting to you. Um, another thing I would say is that it appears that we just reinvented money at a time where we need it. And what that means is there's going to be a massive paradigm shift in the world, similar to the internet, similar to mobile phones. And now we have a new monetary layer essentially for society. And so you have a decision now you can say, Hey, I'm going to put my head in the sand and I'm just going to say, whatever happens, happens. I'll deal with it later. Totally fine. You can do that. Um, you don't have to participate, right? You'll, you'll own Bitcoin in the future at a much higher price and that's fine. You don't have to, or you can say there's massive change coming. There's still some risks, but there's clearly a paradigm shift here. Maybe I should learn about this thing. Maybe I should invest a little bit in this thing. Maybe that will help me in the future. So if you're a young person, this is the most exciting place in the world. If you're an intellectual who likes ideas and thinking and you want a little hope about the future, Bitcoin has that. The future is grim. Young people are not optimistic about the future. And yet they, they fall into the Bitcoin sphere and they realize, wow, these people, um, they care. They want to make the world a better place and they have a tool to actually do it. And so come join Team Bitcoin and see if that doesn't change your life. And make sure you're stacking your stats with swanbitcoin.com. <laughs> right, Brandon? Amen. Yes, I work for swanbitcoin.com. If you go to swanbitcoin.com slash quitum, my last name, uh, you can get $10 in free Bitcoin for signing up. And we're a low cost way to start buying Bitcoin. Um, you can set up an automatic plan, which most of our customers do. For example, you can buy 50 bucks a week or whatever your number is, connect your bank, hit go, and it's fully automated, which I think is the right approach to Bitcoin. Just pick a dollar amount, automate it, hit go, wake up rich in 10 years. Perfect. Well, Brandon, thank you again so much. And uh, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, man, really appreciate you having me on here. Um, you can find me, the best place is Twitter, uh, B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M, B-Quitum. That's on Twitter. Uh, my personal website is brandonquitum.com. That's where I post all my writings. Um, I've got a media section there if you want to check out old interviews or podcasts or whatever. Um, and if any of these ideas are interesting, come say hello on Twitter. My DMs are open. I love talking to Bitcoiners. Or if you're just curious, have a question, that's cool too. Throw Brandon a DM on Twitter. If it's like me, he'll get back to you in about three minutes from some random guy he'd never talked to before. Again, Brandon, thank you so much for everything you've done today. You've been a great help and we appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And I can't promise I'm going to respond that quickly. You caught me at a good time, <laughs> but I do try to respond. <laughs> okay. Don't hold him to the three or four minute mark, but shoot him a message if you have questions. There you go. There you go. Thank you very much, Eric. Of course, Brandon. Appreciate your willingness to come on. All right. How awesome was that? Brandon really brought it. He dropped a wealth of knowledge on today's show. And we covered so many different topics that he's just so knowledgeable in every different one. Now, I did forget to ask the final question because we were running a little over time. So just a reminder, the question is, assuming they know about the internet, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive and explain what Bitcoin means to you and how it could impact humanity, who would it be and why? Brandon's answer was, I would say Terrence McKenna. He was always forward thinking and I think he would love Bitcoin. He was also the first person that I am aware of to compare the computer internet to mycelium and mushrooms. 
So Brandon really brings it full circle and back to his interests, which I really respect. And I think to him and Terrence could have an awesome conversation about Bitcoin and mushrooms. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you have any feedback or reviews, please feel free to give me five stars if you like the show and leave some reviews on iTunes and Spotify. I greatly appreciate it. Also, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can shoot me a message on any platform or my email. You can find me at E3BTC on all of the platforms. Thank you once again for coming out and I will catch you next time. Take us away, bro.